my friends, welcome to another episode of this. This is the Road to Road Football Podcast. My name is Josh Norris. That name, his guy, this guy, Ian Harditz. What's up, buddy? Doing good, Josh. How you doing? Good. You had to work from home yesterday. I usually work from home on Tuesdays. What's what's the habitat of Ian Harditz like on work from home days? Roll to bed, make a pot of coffee. Uh-huh. Write for like 12 hours while Put on said coffee. Real clothes? No, robes only. I'm a big-time robe guy. Love it. I never would have guessed. I've been working on expanding the kimonos, but I'm still haven't figured out the logistics. Slippers? Yeah. You kidding me? Just hanging out in a robe like you're the king of your castle all day watching and writing about football? Everyone's, you know, I'm waiting to get that urge to dress all professional like all you grown-ups, but it just hasn't come yet, so I'm going to keep doing my thing. That's just an amazing visual, Ian. Thank you so much for that on this lovely Wednesday. I have multiple robes. I appreciate you. I rocked them all. So much. Um, okay, so today's going to be a great podcast. A little bit shorter than normal, but that's what we do this time of year. It's still going to be a great one. We're going to start off with news. And then later on, since, you know, basically every single media outlet is writing and coming up and aggregating their top tens, top fives of the last decade, we thought, why not do the same exact thing? It was actually a really fun exercise. What we're going to do is talk through our five favorite players of the last 10 years. Uh, in the NFL. We'll get to what the parameters were when we start that. Favorite, not best. That's what I was going by. I went favorite. Did I say best? No, you said favorite. I'm just making Favorite's sure. the right way. Think of that, though, as we go through these new items, and hopefully you can come up with your list and share them with us as well. Before we move on, do you want to say that Saturday is Roto World Live this week? Not Sunday. It's Saturday because there are three pivotal games this weekend for your fantasy championship. So noon Eastern, twitch.tv slash World. It's Ian, myself, Daigle, spending an hour setting your optimal lineups, answering your questions, previewing games. So if you're in these finals, and we know you are because you listen to the show, you read 17 of Ian's columns every week, then join us. Again, that's noon Eastern, twitch.tv slash Rotoworld this Saturday. All right, a few news items. Let's start off with a change once again, the third one this year at quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. Will Greer is now the starting quarterback underneath Scotty Turner, Perry Fuel as head coach um, for the final two games, most likely. This actually hasn't, you know, been, it's, it's been, only been reported. It hasn't been announced by the team yet, but all signs point to this because Perry Fuel stood up there on his Monday morning press conference and said, well, we'll have an announcement later on. Um, it's been a weird season for the Panthers. It's been a weird season, especially at quarterback. Do you think this changes anything about their approach to the final two weeks of the year? No, I don't think so. I'm just wondering what took so long. I mean, they've lost, let's see, six straight games. I mean, at some point, I think even during the winning streak, we had our doubts with what Kyle Allen was bringing to the table. I know we did uh, very early in the process, but clearly, I mean, you know, what we saw from the preseason reports out of training camp, Greer has not done enough to kind of seize his job until Allen lost it. So it's a concern, and... You know, I'm hesitant in assuming he's going to be any better because he couldn't beat him out until now. And, you know, I made that mistake earlier in the year when Cam was playing hurt and Curtis and DJ had a very high uncatchable rate. And I assumed, like an idiot, that switching (laughs) from Cam to a healthy quarterback, no matter who that quarterback could be, could help boost that catchable ball rate. It did not. We'll see what happens with Greer. 
A few things here. One, we know that Will Greer is a rookie. He was a top 100 pick, the number 100 overall pick this past offseason. And when Marty Herney and then Ron Rivera made that move, they said it was to lock up the backup quarterback job because the best way to do that is to select a player and groom him at the position. Well, uh, Will Greer has talked about he's basically seen zero first-team reps this entire season. He'll start getting those now. But they, they most likely haven't been impressed by him to make the move this late in the season. I mean, Kyle Allen is someone who was obviously a restricted free agent who most likely will be back on a small deal, most likely as a backup quarterback next season in some capacity. But what a weird, again, season this has been for the quarterback position because with Kyle Allen in his first four starts this season, he had seven touchdowns, zero interceptions. Then in his last eight starts, 10 touchdowns, 15 interceptions to go along with seven fumbles. You could kind of see it coming those first four weeks with Kyle Allen as a starter. And now we just know who he is. At best, he's a very fine backup quarterback across the league that for a stretch of three or four games might allow you to get by if all the pieces work well around him. But as the defense has gotten significantly worse, as the offensive line is still playing at a bad level, he could not keep this Panthers team afloat. And this past Sunday against the Seattle Seahawks, some of the worst interceptions you'll see by any quarterback this season. He very well might be a top 50 quarterback in the world. He's just not a top 32. And that's okay. Yeah. If you find yourself a good backup for the future, then by all means. But I think the big takeaway here is, like, how, is, how did Christian McCaffrey do what he did this season? Good because, point. I mean, look, right now, he joins Marshall Falk, Priest Holmes, with Damian Thomason, only RBs to ever average 29 points per reception per game throughout the season. Those quarterbacks were Kurt Warner, Trent Green, and Phillip Rivers, all on number one scoring offenses. McCaffrey's had Kyle Allen, Hurt Cam Newton, now Will Greer in the league's 16th ranked scoring offense. It's incredible. He's gotten the volume, but for him to be that efficient still is just crazy. Three more thoughts. Three. One, I actually think Kyle Allen has helped DJ Moore's production. Yeah. In some ways, because I believe DJ Moore is targeted at the highest rate on slants across the NFL. That's DJ Moore's best route. That's where Kyle Allen, his best throw is. So I don't know if that changes this final week in terms of fantasy football or the next two weeks. Um, two, I also don't want to write off Will Greer's career based on these two games. Yeah. And it's going to happen in some ways. Three, this also brings us into the offseason with Cam Newton. And this is going to be a storyline we talk about all offseason because it's really Cam Newton and Jameis Winston is the biggest quarterback story arcs this in the next few months. Yeah. I just quickly don't believe that Cam Newton is going to play anywhere on his current contract because it's about $20 million, no guaranteed money after that. And people are going to ask and say, well, he doesn't have – any leverage in this situation. Yes, he does. He has an MVP trophy. He has top fight play a season ago for eight weeks before all these injuries happened. And right now that quarter, that $20 million is sitting him as the quarterback 14. Um, either he gets a short extension from the Panthers or they trade him and he goes somewhere else and he gets an extension somewhere else. Because a quarterback, like of, years? Right, a quarterback right. of that caliber doesn't play in a contract when he has missed time that doesn't have any future guarantees involved. And he can walk into 20 different teams and be just the face of that franchise from day one. Love to see him in Chicago. But, no, I agree with you. I think probably not some five- or six-year deal, but at least two or three, right? I mean, we've seen those be given out over the years. Right, for sure. All right, other big news item this week. Oh, big is relative. Uh, but this one was an interesting dynamic and storyline that picked up this weekend. The Cleveland Browns are playing the Arizona Cardinals, 
And obviously we know the turmoil that has gone along the Browns organization this year, how they had these expectations that were sky high and they failed to meet them, meet them at basically every single turn. Um, so apparently, reportedly, and this comes from Michael Silver, Jarvis Landry was shouting at the Cardinals bench saying, hey, come get me. Not in a, hey, come get me, I'm right here, uh, let's face off one-on-one. -on -one. It's, <laughs> hey, come get me from the Browns roster, I would much rather play with you. And he wasn't the only one. There were other unnamed players that were doing the exact same thing. This is not what you want to hear from an organization that has talent on it that has had one of their better seasons in a long time, even if it has missed expect expectations. But Jarvis Landry was supposed to be a leader on this team. Like, that's why the Browns brought him in on the roster. People love this Cardinals team. Like, my people, I mean NFL players. Remember when Gronk said that when yes. he would consider coming back, it would be maybe the Cardinals. I just think with Kingsbury, how much of a player's coach he seems like, people obviously recognize the Kyler Murray talent. I think AB had some stuff to say earlier in the year as well. But – they want to play there, which I think is interesting. It'll be fun to see what kind of free agents they can get while they still have the open salary cap. But, no, it's a disaster in Cleveland. I mean, look at how big of a difference four months can change things right now. Jarvis was playing with his best friend with, you know, the best quarterback of his career in August. And now, wow, now we're here. Now he's yelling at the Arizona Cardinals to come get him. So. There, there's an interesting dynamic here because you remember this offseason when Duke Johnson wanted out as well. And Baker Mayfield kind of publicly called him out saying, hey, you're on under contract. You're playing for the Browns. Come play with us. And his teammates kind of scolded Baker Mayfield for that. And I don't know what the dynamics were. I don't know if it was because, you know, Baker's just entering his second year and there were other veteran players that have understood this because Jarvis Landry wanted out, Odell Beckham wanted out of his team. There are a number of other players that were like that on the Browns. But now Baker's kind of like in isolation a little bit because Odell and Jarvis are all making these seemingly sentiments that they want out. But then Baker is also taking the step like we saw with him calling out the own, his own training staff for not really taking care of Odell Beckham appropriately, um, that he's kind of siding with these players right now. There, it's going to be another crazy offseason for the Browns, an unpredictable one, and probably not in the right ways. I guess Jarvis just wants to win, which I can't fault him for. With that said, like, there's not been probably a more inefficient receiver to get force-fed targets like him over the last half decade. So maybe chill out a little bit there, Jarvis. The OBJ thing is very interesting because it does sound like there's a disagreement between him and the medical team. It doesn't sound like it was as severe as Trent Williams or anything like that. But whenever, I mean, I don't blame the guy for losing trust in the organization if they were telling him one thing and, you know, certified smart doctors, doctors were telling him another. So that's interesting. But then... The biggest surprise this entire season to me has just been Baker going from what I think we all assumed was going to be at worst an above average quarterback right. to anyone's idea of just a bad quarterback. I mean, he has been worse than Eli Manning in every single statistic. And I just didn't think that was possible. You have to be doing something wrong when a receiver is upset receiving 123 targets on the season. That's what I'm saying. Like, come on, Jarvis. It's wild. You're getting fed. Uh, quick question, then we'll move on. Do you think Freddie Kitchens survives Black Monday? No, I don't. I don't know what in this Browns, the, you know, state stability in this Browns organization has been a joke. So I don't, with all this stuff going on and, you know, now they're going to, Dorsey's going to want to try to just save his decisions that they were right and now it's just the coach. And no, I don't think Kitchens lasts. Me either, because I don't know who he has elevated. Like when you ask that question, who has he elevated in this program? Answer is no one. Yeah, he's the superstars are not playing like superstars consistently. Done the opposite of elevating them. All right, let's hit on the hook. Another fun part of this podcast. Right. Uh, our favorite five players of the decade. Look, this isn't the best. This isn't the most productive. 
Um, it's really just the five players that have left the lasting impact on us when we look back at the last 10 years. You know, we were talking about prior to this podcast, 10 years isn't that long of a time. Like when I think of history, which really 10 years is an extended period of time, um, I thought back to like names like Sean Alexander and Ed Reed and Bob Sanders. And I mean, those guys are all 2000s players. These weren't 2010s players. Yeah. Like where were you in 2010, like first grade? Oh, stop it. 2010, I was on the Columbus, Ohio high school football fields making some plays, baby. We didn't officially set parameters for this year, and I had just graduated college in 2011, so the 2010 season was my senior year of college. Um, look, it's not like these players had to have been drafted in 2010 and beyond, but I think, and again, we didn't discuss these, but I, I think both you and I naturally pick players who had their peak during the last 10 years. So yeah. you're not going to find someone like, you know, Steve Smith, who probably had three of his best five seasons before 2010, even though he was still a productive player mm. in the 2010s. Fair? Same thing with Darrell Rivas, same thing with Chris Johnson. Just It was tough to put these awesome, memorable guys in if their best kind of defining career moments happened before 2010. Before we start, any honorable mentions, guys? that Because we only pick five. Yeah. Ones that you really wanted to put in the list that just didn't make it. I wanted Adrian Peterson in there for coming back from that, you know, 20 ACL, lead the league in rushing, having the 2,000-yard year. And then even, like, his, he's been playing great on the Redskins this season. And even, like, even the Saints era gave us that gif of him, you know, kind of calling out Peyton from the side. Like, every part of Peterson's career has, you know, been pretty enjoyable. But I end up not putting any running backs on mine. Mm. I'm happy you put yours whoa, in. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, Let's not reveal. I'm not saying anything more, but I just, AP was close for me. I just couldn't quite squeeze him on. Another name I wanted to fit on here was Stefan Dix. Um, oh, yeah. You know, he's never going to be considered the best all-around wide receiver in the NFL because you just have monsters in Julio Jones and DeAndre Hopkins and Michael Thomas. But I think there's an argument to make that Stefan Diggs is the best route runner in the NFL. And he might have had the most memorable moment of the last decade. Exactly. And I, that stands out to me as well. And he, he really has helped me learn how to evaluate the wide receiver position even more because you look at his releases, they're very much like one-on-one -on -one isolation basketball moves, yeah. crossovers, behind-the-back dribbles, um, and just to create that initial separation, sustain it. And the play you mentioned against the New Orleans Saints, that was just absolute mayhem <laughs> to, to win that game. Yeah, that moment stands out. All right. Let's start off at number five. Why don't you go ahead with number five? Number five, and this wasn't even supposed to be ranked, so these are just my, you know. Top well, you got to rank them now, then. Well, okay. Des Bryant, I guess, is my number five, but he's number one in my heart. Oh, my gosh. I have my favorite. I wear it tonight to our company Christmas party, but Merry Xmas, Des throwing up the X on the Christmas sweater. Get ready. It's beautiful. But this guy was every single year of Des's career to me was just awesome. As a rookie, he was this electric returner that didn't have well-defined routes, but he was just so athletic and explosive that he made a season where John Kitna started 10 games. Very doable for Cowboys fans. And after that, I mean, he had one, like, man year. And from years three to five, 1,200-plus yards, 12 touchdowns. I mean, that run of dominance he had from 2012 to 2014 was as good as any receiver I think we've seen in this decade. And just the way he went about it, man. Like, I've never seen a wide receiver in particular 
lived so much on momentum. And just when he, he got mm. going and get his teammates uh, psyched up. Every other week, there was some bullcrap media report saying how, you know, Dez was young as teammates, and every single time they come out, no, Dez just wants the best. He's trying to pump us up. And I believe that. Dez is an emotional guy. He plays with, he's always played with his emotions on his sleeve. You got to have a lot of balls to do that. Dez always did it. And, you know, we talked about Stefan Diggs having one of the big moments of the decade. Des caught it is also one of the most defining moments. Mm. And, I, you know, the NFL said years later, yes, he did catch it. So Des Bryant, to me, needs to be on any of these lists. That three-year stretch from 2012 to 2014, 92 receptions, 93 receptions, 88 receptions, over 1,230 yards in each one, at least 12 touchdowns in each season. Uh, I will say, I mean, only an eight-year career here for Des Bryant. Um, so far. Spanning from 2010 to 20. What, is he playing the XFL next season? Oh, um, unprovoked shot. Look, it, I, and I'm not going to criticize your picks here because it's all personal. But you look at, he, he's a very unique player, right? One that a style that I don't know would be loved in the NFL nowadays. Like, who, who is the closest to Des Bryant in the NFL right now? Is there even someone who's like that? It's like a, I want to say A.J. Brown, but they're not. No. They're not. But I would say the closest thing, are, the, the, the closest thing that has been drafted as of late is probably Nikhil Harry. But yeah. that's a very specialized type of skill set. And I love that skill set. That Des Bryant can bring to the table that you have consistent success with, right? Someone who doesn't necessarily separate at all times, especially in the later portions of their career, but in a true one-on-one matchup, just wins it 80% of the time. And that physical dominance, I think, is the part that shows up and probably b- drags us and brings us to a player like that that is just so dominant in that one aspect and area of the game that other people aren't, that it stands out. People always hate on the goal line fade for good reason. It's not an efficient play. But Tony Romo to Des Bryant might have been the only combination of the last 20 years that truly was an efficient goal line fade. You could not stop that guy in the red zone. He proved it over and over again. And, yeah, is that the best characteristic to probably have in today's modern NFL? No, you want to separate. But – Dad's got it done his way, and I'll always love him for it. My number five, Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson opened the door to really, like, break the box at the position. Um, Because, you know, so long these old-school NFL evaluators at quarterback were searching for the next Tom Brady. They were searching for the next Peyton Manning, these statue pocket passers. And I know Drew Brees was short, and Drew Brees fell to the second round, and Drew Brees certainly had – very many highs prior to and during Russell Wilson's career. But Russ and Drew are very different players. Like, without Russell Wilson succeeding and being drafted in the third round and immediately supplanting a high-priced free agent in Matt Flynn and doing what he did so early on, I don't think Johnny Manziel's a first-round pick. I don't think Kyler Murray is the number one overall pick Mm -hmm. because this is a player who really made you reevaluate what a quarterback looked like And even his college team didn't want him in the end. I know that probably isn't an aspect of this, but he had to move on from NC State during his final season because they wanted to go with a tall pocket passer in Mike Glennon. And so he had to go into Wisconsin and had another fantastic season. Uh, Russell Wilson is the type of player that, like, if we could look back and evaluate and supplant and, like, put in the NFL right now, our opinions of him would be much higher but he's the one that allowed us to, to shift and change our thoughts on the position. I've been playing catch-up with Russ for the last few years. I fully realize how amazing he is, but at first, 
I was just hesitant in crowning him too much because of how good Marshawn Lynch in the run game was, how little they asked him to pass, and just how amazing the defense was. I mean, I remember you know, the year they went to the Super Bowl and he threw the pick against the Patriots. The game before that, he threw four picks against the Packers, didn't even complete 50% of his passes, but threw the overtime touchdown, and everyone kind of was like, oh, my God, look at, look at Russ. So some of that annoyed me throughout the years, but these last five years especially where he's been forced to carry the offense again and again and again with – Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett, who are very good receivers, nothing against them, but like I think we can agree that they haven't exactly surrounded him with just these awesome pass catchers year after year. Loses Marshawn, it didn't matter. Seahawks have been just an awesome offense every year of the Russell Wilson era, and kudos to him. I mean, he couldn't be more lame in like his mic'd up segments. Could not be more. Or post-game interviews, but then that is so drastically different than how he plays the game on the field, where he causes mayhem on his own. Like, I know the offensive lines he's played around haven't been great, but he actually causes more pressure and disruption for him because he, he scrambles into pressure, he rolls into pressure. But then it's like he wants to, to dig a hole three feet under to then crawl out of it and make an even more explosive play. And he does that consistently. Like, their dots are in vogue right now, right? You see dots on Twitter of plays that have, have gone through and, and just how they look. And if you wiped away colors and numbers and just showed a quarterback doing the hokey pokey in the pocket, twisting and turning, and then throwing just these touch passes vertically down the field, you could point to, hey, that's a Russell Wilson play. Yeah, and I was thinking about this. I was watching Deshaun Watson the other day, and they kind of had that similar style at times. I would like to see some stats that kind of what quarterbacks, where they usually set up with in the pocket. Because I feel like Russ and Deshaun, they're about 10 yards behind the line of scrimmage where a lot of guys are just getting the ball out quickly. But it almost becomes like an open field tackling drill to get Russ because he's so athletic. And, you know, he's been – I mentioned his receivers haven't been great. We haven't even touched on the offensive line. Like, the fact he's been able to do all this at his size and not really get hurt, I don't don't think he's missed a game, has he? No. played a little banged up one year, but, no, yeah, all, all all the credit in the world to Russ. Who's your number four? Another wide receiver, Mr. Golden Tate. Wow. One of Russ's old teammates uh, once got allegedly thrown to a trash can by Percy Harvin yes. before the Super Bowl. But, hey, he is the single swaggiest touchdown celebrator of the last decade. And I asked <laughs> my Twitter followers this and if, see if they agreed. He came in second behind, behind Deshaun Jackson. I can't disagree with that, but Golden Tate does have my uh, vote. And he's been doing it his entire life. When he was at Notre Dame. He jumped into the Michigan State band after scoring a touchdown. That was incredible. He scored a long touchdown over Janoris Jenkins with the Seahawks and then proceeded to taunt Rodney McLeod from about the 20-yard line in, which started a fight, which was awesome. He wheel-kicked Andrew Sandejo as he scored a game-winning touchdown in (laughs) overtime. And then even last week, he just, you know, had an easy walking touchdown that he felt the need to slow up for the last 10 yards just so he could taunt that safety and let them know for an extra five seconds just how bad they were on that play. So is Golden Tate even a top 10 receiver of this last decade? Probably not, but the celebrations, the fact that everywhere he went, he was always the top of the league and yards after catch. I mean, dude's electric with the ball in his hands. Always just fun to watch. Again, it's more of a style pick for me, and no one have more style than Golden Tate. You like Flash. Yeah. You like Flash. Uh, Golden Tate's also played for four different NFL teams over the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, that's not something you're going to find in, on this list quite often mm-hmm. at all. Um, Golden Tate is also one of those players that somehow every four to five weeks has this random electric play that really like no one else in the league can do. Like right place, right time, juggling catch that makes two defenders miss, and then just trots away from everyone and finishes it with this this flash and flare. 
Um, I don't know how it happens. It's one of those be like, well, that can't repeat itself week in and week out. Okay, every three weeks it does <laughs> with Golden Tate somehow. Yeah, I mean, so look, so much of his catches are screens and short stuff, but I mean, he had that OBJS one-handed catch on uh, Monday Night Football, wherever it was, a few weeks ago. Uh, to me, he's kind of like, um, I don't want to say, he's Tyreek Hill in contested catchways. Like, he's much mm. better downfield than he gets credit for. I think, you know, in Detroit, he was used as more as like this only underneath threat, but I think he can do more, and he has proven that a little bit throughout his career. I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. He has been on four teams. I don't know if he's been the greatest teammate all this time. I, I can't speak on that. But what I can speak on is that very few players gave me as much joy watching Golden Tate than the Golden Tate at his peak. My number four, Grady Jarrett. Uh, probably a shock. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> yes. Look, some people might say Aaron Donald or Geno Atkins. This is a selfish selection. I will say that. And it's because Grady Jarrett showed me I could do this, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Because I love Grady Jarrett coming out of Clemson. Um, had a top 25 evaluation on Grady Jarrett. Then he goes and is selected. In fact, I like interviewed him down this hallway oh, wow. um, prior to the draft. Awesome interview. He's an awesome dude. Talked about his wrestling background, so on and so forth. Nice. Top 25 evaluation on Grady Jarrett. Then he goes and is selected in the fifth round, 137 overall. Yep. You know, to the common reader, that's not a great visual. Right? No. When, when a football writer ranks someone as a, a, a top 25 player and then he's not <laughs> drafted until at least 100 picks after that. You know, and that first season, just four tackles for loss, one sack. It's, it, it wasn't going too well. But then the Super Bowl against the Patriots shows up. And yes, I understand, 28 to 3. But if you ever go back and watch that game, Grady Jarrett is unbelievable. He's just a ludicrous football player, and it showed up even in the box score with three sacks on Tom Brady. Like, he, he was the best, arguably the best player in that field other than Julio Jones that day. And I've always loved athletic interior defensive linemen that can bend, that can create separation, that can win with their hips in that tight space. And even today, when the Atlanta Falcons defense is absolute garbage, even this past week weekend, Grady Jarrett is still creating disruption, still making plays, and I wish his teammates would step up around him like that. He, he's just really been a really fun watch and, and kind of like a, a monumental player in my career personally, I think. The evaluation is awesome because, I, you know, just thinking of like lower levels of football too, like the most annoying guys to ever block on the inside were these wrestler, kind of undersized. I know he's 6'1", 304, which is hardly undersized. But, you know, compared to some defensive tackles, sure. And just can penetrate and continuously makes plays and disruption in the backfield. So... You nailed it, man. And now he's a top three earner at the position. Like, he's still playing. He's just 26 years old, I think, now, or 27 years old. A long career ahead for Grady Jarrett. And, and one, it's been really fun to watch. I mean, there have been Malik Jackson, who Devontae Freeman, Levante David, other players I really love. But I think Grady Jarrett's the one who I think I will always root for uh, in his career. Again, for selfish reasons. For sure. Who's your number three? Number three is Rob Gronkowski. It's, uh, I hope we see more of him. We'll see what uh, 2020 brings. But, you know, the Patriots have been the defining team of the last two decades, and I think Gronk is the only player from those teams that pretty much universally everyone loved. I mean, how could you not love this guy? Not only is he the best tight end ever, if you just want to go on what he did receiving-wise, and I think blocking as well, and just not, not career totals, but just who at their peak was the best tight end. I think you'd have to say it's Gronk. And look, Tom Brady's the GOAT quarterback and Gronk was easily his most efficient receiver ever. I mean, mm. we should have given talk about what happened to Tom Brady. Well, he lost his best receiver ever. Like we knew Brady's splits were pretty awful without Gronk. And, you know, we thought maybe Gordon and Edelman get more involved. Brady could just do what he always does and fix it. But 
man, like this was kind of staring us right in the face going into the year, and I think we all just ignored it. So looking back, uh, kind of an issue there, but everything he did was fun. Not just the Gronk spikes, not just the after the game stuff, but right. I think my favorite Gronk moment was when the Colts, I'm sorry, the Patriots scored game winning, not game winning, but game ending touchdown on the Colts, and Gronk proceeds to drive the outside linebacker all the way into the camera stand off the sideline. Gets, gets the flag, gets asked after the game, Gronk, wh- why'd you do that, man, in this meaningless moment of the game? And he goes, well, he was yapping the whole game, so I took him and threw him out of the club. Wow. So just a Gronk statement, and yeah. I mean, this is a player whose body just broke down on him. Yep. And it, it was like that coming out of Arizona. This is why he won the second round. He had back surgery. He had back surgery, and then immediately after that has some of the best th- start of the three seasons of a tight end of all time. 10 touchdowns, 17 touchdowns, 11 touchdowns in his first three years. His second year in the league, over 1,300 receiving yards, 90 receptions. Um, And then, I mean, he had two more great seasons, 2014 and 2015. It's not often, Ian, that you and I, because we are just so young, that can say, look, we have watched the best player most likely in NFL history at his position. And I think that's fair to say with Rob Gronkowski. I do. I mean, look, he's him and LaShawn McCoy, who should have been on the honorable mention list as well, say that now. They had 80 touchdowns from 2010 to 2018 when Gronk retired. That was the most in the league, any position. You throw playoffs in there, obviously it's not even close. So literally the premier touchdown score, he was a tight end. I know. And he wasn't just, you know, nowadays we're seeing guys like Mike Jusecki, some of these different tight ends that are more or less slot and wide receivers with a tight end designation. Gronk was a legit tight end. And, you know, him and some of the things that he was able to do with, you know, Aaron Hernandez on the football field for a couple years and just kind of bring that two tight end formations to light, show that, you know, a tight end can be a number one pass option in the offense and you can use them like receivers. It's revolutionizing the game still today. Yeah, I, I think teams are still searching for their own Rob Gronkowski. I was going to mention him at the top, but I knew you were going to say him. Of course. So I just didn't want to, yeah. you know, get in front of you with that. Makes sense. My number three, Earl Thomas. Ooh. Earl Thomas is the 14th pick in the 2010 NFL Draft. And he is the reason why so many teams have tried to copy the Seattle defense and in 80% of the time have failed because he is such a rare player at that single high deep safety spot. And you know, I let off this podcast mentioning a few great safeties that we've seen in recent memory. Ed Reed, Bob Sanders, Troy Palomalu. Again, those were in the 2000s really. And in the 2010s, Earl Thomas is just an insane football player. And I even think if football was broadcast differently, and this is a much longer conversation, yeah. but like we love, you know, the Aaron Donalds, the, the J.J. Watts, the Luke Keekleys, the Bobby Wagners, because we see them on every single snap. We see where they are aligned. We see them attacking the football because that's just what is in the vision mm-hmm. of the camera. Okay, just I wonder if we saw all 22 players in the field, or if we saw those end zone angles that NBC has experimented with, the, the behind the line of scrimmage angles, behind the lines angles. And you would see Earl Thomas taking away certain reads immediately, baiting quarterbacks into it, how he flies around the field, how he starts off the screen, then ends up with just this hammering, aggressive hit in the box near the line of scrimmage. He's a rare player, one that we never see across the league, and one who made, I think, that whole Legion of Boom operation worked to its full capacity. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, the Seahawks, they never, like Sherman didn't travel with opposing number one wide receivers almost every game, you know, during their heyday. There were a lot of good pieces on that defense, but I think most people would agree Earl Thomas was the single most replaceable. I mean, I remember we were talking with uh, John Daigle 
about, you know, like what's the most valuable kind of piece you want in defense. And right. He would say middle of the field safety, like go get me someone like Earl Thomas. And you know what? I think you're better off, you know, getting an awesome like edge rusher or something that there's more of that exists because you can't find players like Earl Thomas that can literally cover half the field on every single play. Who's your number two? Number two is from that same defense. Cam Chancellor. Interesting. Uh, who is the better safety? Earl Thomas. Come on. Right. Who is the more swaggy? Who is the harder hitter? Who is more fun to watch? It was Cam Chancellor, wow. man. He is the last true, like, headhunting gets a – he wasn't, like, actively trying to headhunt people. That's, but it's just those safeties that were so aggressive and so relentless, there were a ton of them in the mid-2000s. You know, Bob Sanders, Brian Dawkins. We mentioned right. some of these guys. And Roy Williams was one of my personal favorites. But Cam, I think, especially nowadays, the rules are – they're just not going to exist anymore. If you hit some guy too hard these days, and even though it's clean, they just instinctively throw the flag. And, I mean, yeah, that happened to Cam sometimes. I remember, you know, wheel route down the sideline to Vernon Davis. Pretty much like you got shot. Cam hit him so hard, and you just see flags come flying in from off angles on all ends. But he just has uh, several memorable moments, too. Uh, against your Panthers in the divisional round, pick six from about <laughs> 90 yards out to end it. Uh, in that Super Bowl, remember, like the first, first drive snap goes out the end zone. Second drive, they throw a little crosser to Demarius Thomas, and Cam hits him about five yards, you know, off his feet. Demarius mm-hmm. Thomas is a six-three, two hundred twenty-pound wide receiver. Didn't even stand a chance against Cam. So, six-four, two twenty-five, had a dark visor. He could run. He could make plays. And his career got cut short, unfortunately. No, he wasn't the same player in his later years as he was, you know, when they were the true legion of boom. But you know, see that kind of taken from from an injury is unfortunate. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I love watching that guy play. This is kind of like a. And I know you're not into this, but I'll explain it to the people out there. A Ronaldo Messi conversation here. A I'm aware bit. who they are. Okay. <laughs> One, because people talk about Lionel Messi as the best ever, the best of this generation. But the argument against him is that he's only stayed at Barcelona his entire career. So he's had everything built around him in many ways. Meanwhile, Ronaldo has been great at Man U, at Real Madrid, at Juventus, and every single place he's gone, he's been great and they've won. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor. I know they're very different players. They play kind of different positions, even though they're both listed at safety, but they occupy different levels of the field. Earl Thomas, we have now seen go to the Baltimore Ravens. And despite a slow start, he's now probably a main factor in why they might be the best secondary yeah. in the NFL. Meanwhile, Cam Chancellor, again, career shortened, but he had a very specific role on one team that we saw him put be put into the optimal place for him to succeed, and he thrived. Yeah. Right? And he thrived. I don't know if he could do it in any other defense because he didn't have that same middle-of-the-field ability. But he had Earl Thomas, so he didn't need to have it. And he had Bobby Wagner in front of him. The whole defense was awesome, and that's why I felt like I needed to have a member from that defense because I think that was a defining kind of unit of these last 10 years. And to me, Cam was always just the funnest to watch. My number two is Marshawn Lynch. Uh, Marshawn Lynch, I know, had a few years, and this is the first player who really had a few years before 2010. Those are all with the Buffalo Bills. In fact, he was traded to the Seattle Seahawks in 2010, October 5th, for only a fourth-round pick in the 2011 NFL Draft and a conditional pick in the 2012 NFL Draft. It was said he just didn't want to be in Buffalo. He was somewhat productive there as well. But in this decade is where we have really seen Marshawn Lynch blossom on the field and really off the field as well, which I think subconsciously or in some way factors into this list. Um, look, that season, I believe he was traded to Seattle. They went 7-9, and nine, but they made the playoffs. And that run, Beast Quake. that run happened that year 
as a home playoff game against the New Orleans Saints when he runs over, runs through, as he called it, it was just a little baby stiff arm, just threw Saints defenders to the ground and rumbles and basically starts an earthquake in Seattle. I mean, you talk about memorable moments, and especially when it counts the most in playoff scenarios, that has to be near the top of the list, maybe just behind Stephon Diggs' reception to beat the Saints also. And <laughs> poor Saints. Just in terms of difficulty, it's for sure number one. I mean, you know, I know Stephon Diggs' touchdown was difficult, but let's be honest, it's because Marcus Williams tackled his own teammate that it happened. Marshawn Lynch had to break like eight individual tackles on that one run and then hits him with a, you know, his patented celly on his way into the end zone. But he had multiple runs like that. I mean, I know that year. There was one against Arizona a few years later as well Arizona. when he, I think that was a 79-yard touchdown run. And this brings it back. You know, people kind of, I think, have, have thought that Marshawn Lynch, maybe from his final few years, is like a LeGarrette Blunt type. Not at all. Oh. I think his quickness, his acceleration – and his long speed have always been a bit underrated because people view him as, as a hammer, right? Someone who has just been impossible to tackle. Like you watch some of the games, and it's fun. When we were coming up with these lists, I'm sure you did the same thing. You, you go back and watch career highlights of these yeah, players. Of course. And there were plenty of moments where you see defenders just not want to tackle him. <laughs> like they just put a hand on him. They try to extend. They try to dive at his ankles. And he just runs right through them. And there were plenty of moments where the announcers literally on television say, and there's nothing there, he's going down for a short gain, where he breaks through an entire team and reels off a 17-yard touchdown run. Yeah, he, he is, again, a totally different type of player that I'm not sure can be repeatable because so much of it comes from a mindset of just wanting to demolish and demoralize your opponent. But, like, he had eight to almost, pretty much had a 10-year stretch where he, that was always his running style, most violent runner in the league, and he still survived for eight or ten years. I mean, we saw guys like Marion Barber, like Devontae Freeman now right. a little bit, where they can do it for four or five years and then kind of, understandably, the wheels start coming off a little bit. Marshawn, even in his Raiders career, I mean, it took him a little bit to get, get going, I think, at the beginning of that season, but I remember the second half of 2017, like, all of a sudden, he was actually crushing it. So, um, Ian, I just noticed we have a lot of Seahawks on these lists. And in yeah. fact, I was going to throw out Doug Baldwin's name as an honorable mention as well, just for his toughness over the middle of the field. But we've talked about Marshall Lynch, Cam Chancellor, Earl Thomas, Russell Wilson. Why are we talking about so many Seahawks? Did you name any AFC guys? I said Gronk at least. Uh, no, I did not. NFC bias. So I think part of this one is we've seen the Patriots dynasty last for so long, and we, we did name Rob Gronkowski. But the, other than the Patriots, Seattle has been like the team of this decade. Yeah. In terms of consistently competitive and in the conversation of Super Bowl contenders year in and year out. And Carroll's, what, third longest tenure behind Harbaugh and Belichick? Close. I mean, it really speaks to the talent they've acquired, that they've rotated in and out, that we and how they've been able to find it in every single round. I mean, you look at Earl Thomas was the first round pick. Russell Wilson was the third round pick. I believe Cam Chancellor was the fifth round pick. You know, Doug Baldwin was undrafted. Marshawn Lynch, they traded just late-round picks for. That shows a lot of what team building and how other teams are trying to chase what Seattle has done. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is 49ers, Seahawks, at least to me, felt like the rivalry of the decade. Seahawks won the rivalry, so that's why they're getting brought up. Winners get remembered. Who's your number one? We have the same number one. Cam Newton. Who else would it be? It is Cam Cam Newton. Cam Newton. And real quick, I'll let you dive into his... 
NFL career, but I just want to point out that, yeah, he's amazing NFL. The Auburn team he dragged to a national championship is laugh out loud funny. Here are the leading receivers and rushers. Darvin Adams. Darvin Adams, Terrell Zachary, Emery Blake, Philip Lustrican. Lutzen Kirkin. There we go. Cody Burns, Mario Fannin. Like, you know, all those guys are a million times better at football than you and me will ever be, have ever been. But uh, what a one-man show. The best single season of college football I've ever watched. Ever, ever. Um, and then you carry that over to his MVP season. These were his wide receivers in his MVP season. <laughs> it was Philly Brown. It was Jericho Cotri. It was Ted Ginn. And a rookie year, Devin Funches. Oh, my God. Um, and he was able to win. And, and I know he had Greg Olson. I know he had a good running game. Well, he was also just, I think, 200 yards behind the leading rusher on that team. I mean, that was Cam Newton's team. Um, there's a little bit of a story here. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but... That was a 2011 draft where Cam Newton was the first overall pick. It was going into the lockout. Um, I was lucky enough to be in the Rams' war room during that draft. Um, a lot of uncertainty because, obviously, there, since it was a lockout, no free agency had happened. So a lot of these teams were in need of quarterbacks. That was also the year of Blaine Gabbert, of Jake Locker, of Christian Ponder. God. And, yeah, you might want to laugh at those three names, <laughs> but there was a legitimate debate of who's the best quarterback that year. In fact... We had uh, probably like the Palm catered or Ruth Chris catered at the Rams HQ back then. And walking from dinner to the war room, I was walking with a legit NFL coach. And he told me, and sure, the Rams weren't looking at quarterbacks because he had just drafted Sam Bradford. He told me that because of Cam Newton's performance, in quotes, on John Gruden's quarterback camp, he would take Blaine Gabbert as the first quarterback. And he's not the only one who said things like that. Like, that, this was a common sentiment among people who, you know, have never liked Cam. And a lot of people have never liked Cam. Yep. Um, I, I wish I had talked about the positives before these negatives. But Darren Gant always talks about this, that Cam Newton makes people stupid. And sure, Cam Newton has not been perfect in his entire life. Like, you know, he got dismissed from Florida. He had that awful moment with Jordan Rodriguez, who's a friend, the Carolina Panthers and a beat writer there. Um, but I think so many, so often, those negative moments have overshadowed one, how good of a player Cam Newton is, despite not fitting the mold of perfect mechanics, high completion percentage. But then, two, also like all the positive things yeah. he's done for Charlotte, for the Carolina Panthers. I mean, as small as asking his teammates and in some ways forcing them to give every touchdown ball to little kids in the stands after every single score, to what he does around Thanksgiving, to what he does around Christmas. I mean, the 2010s, this decade of football, when I look back on it, Cam Newton has really defined it for me. No, I agree with everything you said. And I know every preseason when I'm on, you know, scanning tweet deck and this and that, every single time it's, oh, practice started, but Cam Newton's out there with a big box of Popeyes and he's giving it to just all the fans, just being that lovable guy. And, I, yeah, you're right. He Has he been perfect for the last decade? No. Who has? And the one thing I did love, though, with him, too, and this goes for Stephon Diggs as well, there is no, like, feeling out process with Cam when he came into the league. He had a lot of yeah. critics. And what did he do? His first two games, 422 yards through the air, 432 passing yards. Like, this guy, just everyone that said Cam can never pass, he goes out and throws for 400-plus yards in each of his first two games. I loved it so much. I still remember that first game against the Arizona Cardinals because Steve Smith was still on the roster. They ended up losing that game. But it was one that you – I know he played in the preseason – but you still didn't really know what Cam was. Mm. Um, you knew he was a power back, and he's probably the best goal line runner we've ever seen in no, the NFL history. I have 
done, like I've looked back the last five, ten years with guys with a certain amount of rush attempts and their scoring percentage inside yeah. the five, it's Cam, not even close. No one can stop that dive over the top. We right. talk about the Drew Brees dive, whatever. It's the Cam Newton shotgun, two fullbacks in front of him, and he's Superman's over the top. That's one of the defining touchdowns of the century. And then there are Thank more you. just entertaining aspects of his game, and I think maybe this is simplifying it too much, but I really think he changed quarterbacking. Yeah. And look, I, I'm no football historian, right? But just the way that I don't know if we'll ever see, because he and Lamar Jackson are quite different as runners, right? And I think Lamar would probably say this. He learned a lot from Cam, whereas obviously Lamar is so much more agile, so much more of a, like a ballerina when he runs, how he can kind of escape these final contact moments. Cam's was just all power. I mean, he was a force. It was all power, but then every, like, seven or eight weeks, he'd put his foot in the ground, and all of a sudden he's running away from dudes that weigh 50 pounds less yeah. than him. Like, the most ridiculous freak athlete that's ever played the position. And we're talking about his running, but I often believe that Cam Newton as a passer is, is sorely overlooked. Yeah, because look who he's throwing to. Well, when it's not just his MVP season, there were a lot of quality moments in that MVP season. You had... That last second touchdown to Greg Olson, Dalvaseem against the Legion of Boom, against Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, so on and so forth. Giants come all the way back. Camera just catches him nodding and goes out and goes ahead and takes the lead again. You also have that, and I don't even know if you remember this throw, but this is the throw I remember most in his MVP season. That window throw to Ed Dixon near the goal line against the Atlanta Falcons. While he's falling away from his throw, it's this little 90-degree angle over top of a... Falcons defensive tackle to an outstretched hands. It had to have been going 200 miles an hour. I remember that play. I mean, the plays that stand out to me with Cam Newton and overall his game, I think it has somehow, because I know people out there watch games and watch the tape, yeah. but he's still considered a running quarterback. Cam Newton is not a running quarterback. He has never been a running quarterback, maybe outside of his rookie season. The way he can manipulate and handle disruption and the pocket is – have been overlooked, has been overlooked his entire career. And, and it's a shame because we never may see that same Cam ever again. And the difficulty, like, everything was so hardened for this passing game for years. His average target depth was always flirting with 10 yards towards the top of the league. He was throwing to Kelvin Benjamin, Brandon LaFell, Devin Funches, these guys that can't separate and are just bigger body dudes that Cam need to pinpoint passes to. Like, that's why we were so excited about this year because finally he had McCaffrey, DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, guys that could not only separate and give them a more open window and target, but guys that could, I don't know, maybe make a play on their own and not force Cam to right. drag the offense up and down the field every time. But player decade, for sure. And some people, it's kind of like the J.J. Reddick syndrome, where, you know, if he's not on your team, you hate him, but if he's on your team, you love him. Yes. But even with that, and not to get back into this, but there were even Panthers fans, like when I would go home, and depending on who was driving the Uber – what type of person was driving the Uber, I would get in the conversation of, oh, I don't want Cam Newton to be the face of this friend. It's awful. It's not the end of the sour note. Because Cam really yeah. is the most entertaining player of the decade. When you think about yeah. it, with the highs and the lows. Most cheesy player who we should have given honorable mention to. Yeah. J.J. Watt. Well, yeah. We said favorite, not best. So I don't want to hear a bunch of lip from people for not putting someone in, but I'm just saying, like, to get multiple 20-sack seasons. We'll do that next time, just cheesiest player of the decade. Cheesiest player. The Fort Minor, remember the name. Yeah, we, oh we will put God. Fort Minor underneath. <laughs> J.J. Watson, incredible football player, though. I mean, the way he could go outside and inside and best create disruption, one of the best ever. All right, that does it for us. Unless we miss anything. We did not miss anything. 
Don't think so. We'll be back tomorrow with our nine-game preview episode of the podcast. John Daigle, Hayden Winks, and Rhoda Pat will be joining us as well. And again, Rhoda World Live this Saturday, noon Eastern, twitch.tv slash Rhoda World. Be there or what? Be square or be square. Mark Tilson, see ya.